This podcast is brought to you by Cyber Attacks Can Be Prevented. Checkpoint, you deserve the best security. This week on the podcast, we will be discussing the biggest question there is about the future of our planet with someone who grapples with this question more deeply than most. We'll be talking about the elections in Israel that are just over, well, six weeks away or so. Obviously, we will be checking in with National Morning in Britain with the Queen, and we'll be talking about a little bit of extracurricular activities that some of us may have been doing beyond the podcast. We have lots to talk about, Yoni. We do indeed. Jonathan Friedland has written something else that we shall discuss. But for now, I'm Nate Levy of Channel 12 in Tel Aviv. And I'm Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian in London. And this is Unholy. Unholy, two Jews on the news. From Kesha Podcast, Jonathan, I assume it's still very much royal news 24-7 over there? It is. Um, the first signs of some dissent from that, actually. People beginning to say, kind of enough, the sheer volume of coverage. But most of the broadcasters, most media organizations are just not going to dare uh, deviating from the script or from the sort of orthodoxy. And therefore, this is just all the time. It is a kind of period where Britain could look akin to one of those countries where there are, you know, the state broadcaster, state mandated morning uh, pictures. I mean, it does have a look of that. When you walk around the streets of London, there is there are images of the late queen in every bus shelter, on big billboards. There's just a little something vaguely Cuban about it, you know, that you would sort of, instead of Fidel, it's Elizabeth. And, I, and, I've, and there are, I've spoken, you know, informally, news editors and others do say, I'm sure the readers have had enough. We're not going to be the first to break because we just don't want to get condemned for not being patriotic enough. So the feeling is this will go on till um, after the funeral on Monday, and then things, I think, will return. There have been some, some beautiful uh, pageantry processions. Uh, you know, the body of the late Queen has moved in different stages from where she died, Balmoral, her castle in Scotland to Edinburgh. You know, the body born on a, on a hearse, but then on a gun carriage in London, the same gun carriage that carried her late father. And, you know, the Brits do this very, very well. Mm. And the palace particularly, the choreography, the costume, the music. And this is all just the overture mm. to the main performance, which will be on Monday with the funeral. So it, every night people are coming back from work, turning on the TV and seeing a new and different procession. You know, the new king arrives in Belfast. He arrives, visits Wales. He, um, you know, the body is moved from the airport to Buckingham Palace and then it's moved from there to Westminster Hall. Each one has a ceremony. Each one has prayers. Each one has ritual. It's big in terms of volume. The intensity of mourning has now got a focus because people are queuing. Mm -hmm. To, they are lining up to see the to walk, the lying in state to walk past the coffin. And could that be more British or neat than queuing? <laughs> British people love nothing more. They don't care about what they're queuing for. They just want to be in the queue. And this is the queue, the line to end all <laughs> lines because people are getting wristbands. There is catering. Wow. There's a website where you can track wow. the length of the queue and where it goes. I went down there yesterday myself with my notebook in hand just to talk to people there. And, you know, it's very well, touching. People want to be truth. part of you history. They want to stand in line. Just tell us the truth. Just confess. The you truth to stand is in line for 30 I am hours. such an ardent royalist. <laughs> Underneath I it all. Underneath there. it all. It's, I'm, as an Israeli, I'm just asking still, I'm stuck in the, what's a queue? 
No, but I was wondering because we we talked last week and actually we sort of crash recorded our podcast on Thursday Thursday night um, right after Her Majesty uh, Her Majesty's passing. I wanted to, you know, talk to you a little bit today about her connection, maybe her son's connection as well to the Jewish community. And obviously, there were royal d- during uh, history there were monarchs who treated the Jews uh, differently. Edward the First, I'm looking at you, but they were very pretty. I mean, both of them are, are very sympathetic to the community. Yes, and um, there's you know there has been discussion of that too. Um, the meaning for this community, it's worth sort of making the the point that the Jews of Britain are overt in their profession of loyalty to the monarchy. If you visit, walk into any synagogue, I was going to say any Orthodox synagogue. I think it's pretty well any synagogue, not ultra Orthodox actually. There it wouldn't be. But if you went into a mainstream st- synagogue in this country, on a plaque on the wall somewhere will be one page extracted from the Siddur, from the prayer book, and that will be the prayer for the royal family. You know, they do not put up other prayers, but that one gets um, central billing, often ornately kind of carved. And it will say, as Jews do say in synagogue every week, you know, a prayer to the Almighty that our sovereign lady Elizabeth, I can say some of it off by heart from growing <laughs> up, you know, Philip, Duke of Edinburgh, Charles, Prince of Wales, and all the royal family. Oh, wow, you have to change uh, a lot know, of that. They, you, a lot the of Lord put wisdom it. into her heart and the hearts of all her counsellors. <laughs> So that she may deal kindly and truly with all Israel. This is what Jews would say, and the and the knock-on effect is, you know, you'd go to a bar mitzvah or a wedding, and at some point somebody would make a toast to Her Majesty the Queen, and everyone would stand, get to their feet, rise to their feet, and sing the national anthem. And I, you know, wrote elsewhere this week that this was a long time. I had to be probably twenty something before I realised that this is not normal. And if you go to a normal, you know, English or Scottish or whatever wedding, people don't stand up and belt out "God Save the Queen." But Jews wanted to show how loyal they were, mm. um, and so that's the historic roots of it. And they and a lot of them felt it. And the other piece of it, which you and I, I think, did touch on a bit last week, is because she was there so long. She herself was very associated with World War Two in the whole UK-wide national imagination, but that had a particular Jewish dimension because. Britain as the country that fought against fascism, the country that was a refuge for an admittedly very small number of Jewish children through the kinder transport. She became the face of that. And that deepened the bond. And it meant that Jews were prepared to overlook what I think otherwise they'd have been very irritated by. And that is the fact that of all the 120 countries that the Queen visited, she never did visit your home, your needs. She never went to Israel. Yes, actually, there was a uh, media outlet here in Israel, an English uh, uh, media outlet in English that pointed at that out, I think, half an hour after she died. It was like the, the headline was, the Queen never visited Israel. It's like, that is a little self-involved, but never mind. Uh, but yes, but you should note that, of course, uh, Prince Charles uh, did, or King Charles now, uh, he did uh, visit a few times after Rabin's uh, assassination. He was here and Paris's funeral and, and also uh, Prince Philip uh, in a private visit, I believe, after his mother was named uh, Righteous Among Nations, Prince William. So there's a, you know, I don't want to say a procession of the royal family, but they came here uh, a lot. She they herself did. didn't. I mean, what was withheld was the full... Uh, pan- uh, pomp of a you know state visit mm-hmm. or even a visit by the queen as the head of state that was withheld the word is that that was a foreign office decision that while there is still dispute about israel's precise final borders they didn't want to uh give the gift of a royal an official royal visit uh, i wonder if that will now change mm-hmm. with charles we didn't get onto that but he has got jewish credentials of his own mm-hmm. he 
um, has been very, you know, considerate of or thoughtful about the Jewish community of the country at a point where Jews were feeling very beleaguered here, a week before the general election of 2019, you'll remember all the controversy then about the then Labour leader, Jeremy Corbyn, and so on. Officially, it had no link to that, but Prince Charles, uh, then Prince, or invited to Buckingham Palace a representative, or not representative, but a, hundred, a few hundred Jews to celebrate Jewish life in Britain. And he did it, I think, to lift the spirits of a community that he thought was feeling, as I say, beleaguered. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, that was an indicator of who he is. He also has shown great interest in remembering Holocaust survivors, commissioned a series of beautiful portraits of a handful of Holocaust survivors to hang, pride of place as part of the royal collection. So I, I think he has, a bit, you know, um, actually unusually, because he has a lot of work to do to make himself loved as much as his mother was in other parts of British life. Mm-hmm. But with the Jewish community, he has pretty good relations and he starts from a high base which is perhaps not the case with some other groups in the country. So there is affection. Some have even noticed, by the way, the fact that he has taken the name Charles because it was Charles II, the last King Charles, Mm -hmm. who at the very least did not reverse the royal edict which allowed Jews to come back to Britain some more just over 350 years ago after they had been expelled in 1290. So... Charles, you know, there there is some affection there. And as I say, I think there is a dynamic where the Jewish community wants and revels in being loyal, not revels, it's the wrong word, where the Jewish community wants and wants to signal its loyalty to the crown. Still on the topic of Jews, <laughs> the most, el- the, most <laughs> really? elegant segue, like the most elegant segue in the history of our podcast, right? Still on the topic of Jews. I wanted to just talk to you about a story that came out uh, in the New York Times uh, this week and kind of coincidentally, uh, but wholly appropriate for our uh, podcast, coincides with something that happened in Israel as well. So I'm talking about the um, investigative story on the New York Times uh, published Sunday titled In Hasidic Enclaves failing private schools flush with public money. It's kind of a deep dive into the state of Hasidic schools for boys in New York and the fact that they're officially private schools, but are receiving uh, funding, even massive funding from the state, obviously also failing their their students because they're not teaching the core uh, curriculum. Now, this um, came out in the same way, week that it was revealed here in Israel, that former Prime Minister Netanyahu promised uh, United Torah Judaism Party, the ultra-Orthodox party, that if he returned to office, he'll uh, act to give their schools full public funding without requiring them to add general studies to their curriculum. So I would say it's... Um, that this came out in the same week, but it does help us discuss here on the podcast this issue of uh, Haredim and the uh, study on this core study of of, of certain uh, subjects and topics and how much the state does fund them or not. Israel, we should point out for this discussion, has this sort of rule which says if you study 100% core curriculum, we mean Hebrew, English, and math, you will get 100% funding uh, from the state like any other student. If you study, the less you study, the less you get. So the sort of bottom line for this would be 55% uh, funding if you study close to nothing. At the 100%, you would see the uh, Shas uh, education system, the Mizrahim part of the uh, Haredim, and also studying for uh, women. And at the bottom, you would see more the uh, Hasidim and the uh, Litaim. What happened uh, this week was that a part of the sect of the Hasidim, the Bells uh, sect, said that they actually wanted more funding so they might start studying the curriculum that created a rift inside the United Torah Judaism. 
in comes Netanyahu, who's very worried for uh, he doesn't want to lose the votes of this important party. And he said, guys, I'm going to fund. You don't have to study anything more than you study, but I will make sure that you will receive uh, funding like any other student. Obviously, this uh, backfired in some uh, cases for Netanyahu himself. But it again, it underscores this uh, argument. And and I have to say one more thing when we kind of compare the two communities. We could say obviously more about this. I'm, I'd be interested to hear what happens in the UK. But obviously, the big argument in Israel is the fact that these uh, students don't go on to, the men don't go on to work, or mostly, most don't go uh, into work. This will obviously become a problem in 2030. It's still it's a problem now, but in 2030, you're going to have 2 million Haredim in Israel. It's a huge community. They have a lot of political power. What will be their future and the future of the society here is, is a very big question. It's fascinating to me that the dynamic that you've described in both the Israel case and the New York case is similar. Mm-hmm. Um, the Israel one is in a way just more vivid and more blatant, but the same dynamic, which is big Haredi community not complying with what would be the secular demands of education nationally and not and being able to get away with it because of political muscle. And that's true in the narrow context of New York, but obviously true on a national level in Israel, mm-hmm. there is even a miniature version of that here where I'm sitting to you, London Borough of Hackney. It was a couple of years back, but the there was an investigation by the Children and Young People's Scrutiny Commission, which looks into provision, and said that uh, education in unregistered, unregulated educational institutions, meaning Haredi schools in this area, uh, needed to be looked at as a matter of urgency. Uh, They said they found no evidence of a curriculum in these schools teaching up to close to 1,500 boys between age 13 and 18, no evidence that they were adequately covering English, math, science, and broader humanities. And again, the the read of that is that there was um, uh, some turning of a blind eye by the local council because, again, there is political power held by these uh, by groups that are in tight geographic concentration because mm-hmm. obviously in in Hackney as in New York as in Israel there can be sufficient numbers of ultra orthodox Jews that they can carry some political heft so it's the same dynamic in, in all these cases to me the bit that is that that itself is obviously interesting because this is a global Jewish thing mm-hmm. but the bit you picked mentioned about the bell sect saying okay maybe we'll change and start teaching that wider curriculum i think that dynamic is happening again in all across the haredi world across the jewish world but only a bit and it's like one step forward two steps back this move into you know modern life in terms of secular education and having girls education or or in israel the case there of employment that is an issue too in, in in haredi communities outside tentatively hesitantly falteringly you feel the Haredi universe is taking steps towards that. But every time they do, there will be a backlash and pushback from other groups. But yeah. that's the dynamic I think um, is, is, is fascinating to watch here, even besides the, the you know the, the outside world taking an interest, right. as the New York Times have just done. Right. Well, there's obviously a, a, all kinds of differences, because I think in what happens in, in New York, for example, is the Hasidim uh, don't want uh, their children to study core curriculum, and it's the uh, Litvaks or the Litain that do. Here, it's the other way around in Israel. But yes, I think you're pointing to something that really is the main issue here. How much does the society itself want to change? And will that change happen fast enough for the rest of the country here in Israel? I think it's a very urgent and, and pressing question. I heard a friend of mine tell this joke last week. She said a um, an ultra-Orthodox mother 
has more secular children than a secular mother. Because what you have in these communities is a lot of them actually leaving religion. And if you have 10 kids and three or four of them will leave religion, then you realize why this makes sense, why it's not even a joke. Again, this is a slow process. It might be tragically too slow for Israeli economy. I, I remember remind you of the number again. In, in eight years, there will be 2 million Haredim in Israel and 11 million Israelis. So that is almost 20% of the population. They need to be part of, I'm not even talking about the equality in the military service, which is also a huge issue here, but they will need to be part of the employment cycle in this country or, you know, how will the economy sustain itself? I mean, it's, it's a very large question. Um, it, it, interesting to note that the incumbent prime minister, candidate to be prime minister again, Yair Lapid, made his name running on this issue. This was his first political issue in launching his movement, if I remember correctly. Yes. And he was talking about uh, Haredim need to make that contribution. Yes, in the examples you've mentioned of military service. But it'll be interesting to know how much uh, to watch, whether he gets credit for kind of calling this big trend relatively early because it was a long while ago nearly a deck or i think just over a decade ago yeah, I, um you know the dynamic inside and outside very different so inside israel i think it's exactly a big economic issue it's about societal cohesion mm -hmm. you cannot have a fifth of the country who are economically inactive and so on in foot you know in britain in hackney there's there's not enough uh, for it to be an issue like that similarly i would say even in new york you know america can do fine even if this community is economically inactive. But one way or another, these issues keep surfacing. I mean, we should mention that the uh, ju judgment of the Supreme Court just in the last few days, um, whereby, you know, the Justice Sonia Sotomayor a week ago handing down a brief order, which temporarily says that Yeshiva University, I know that's not wholly the same as the ultra-Orthodox world we're describing, but, you know, that Yeshiva University are allowed to refuse to recognize an LGBTQ student group. One way or another, this question of how does Haredi life rub up against uh, regular life? Does, you know, our nations obliged, our societies obliged to fully accommodate a group that, you know, complies with very different norms? Where do the limits lie? Should education be one of them? All of this is at play in very, very different arenas from the United States Supreme Court right through to an Israeli election, through even to the neighborhood I'm in now. The former and former, former chief rabbi of this country, Emmanuel Jakobowicz, used to say to the next, to when young Jewish leaders would come and see him, he would say, what are you doing to plan for handing over the keys of British Jewry to the Haredim? Because that will happen, he used mm. to say. And now, if you look at one in every two Jewish births in this country is ultra-Orthodox. Mm. Um, and so that is where the long-term demographic trend is going, unless people leave. And I, you know, I'm not sure the numbers are there for that outside Israel, yeah. although amazing to think inside. Um, I mentioned Lapid. Yes. And uh, where, whether this issue plays for him at all. Uh, we should have our regular reminder that we are counting down the weeks, oh joy, to <laughs> yet another Israeli election. So where are we on yes, that? Yes, by the way, we're not only counting, bring us up to date. counting down the uh, the weeks, we're also counting down the hours right now, because tonight we're recording this on uh, Thursday afternoon, but uh, tonight um, the list will be finalized. So we will know uh, by midnight exactly what the map is going to look like. Uh, we should say that uh, right now we're not expecting any surprises, which is a surprise. 
surprise in itself. On the right side of the map, Netanyahu, again, yet again, the architect of his own block, organizing the board in a way that he will minimize any sort of loss, losing of uh, votes. So he convinced, now he convinced the after convincing uh, Smotrich and Itamar Ben-Gvir to run together, Itamar Ben-Gvir of uh, Jewish power, Otsmayudit Party, and Smotrich of religious Zionism, now he convinced the far, far, far-right uh, party called Noam, which uh, basically advocate, uh, oppose the rights of the LGBTQ community and all sorts of other things, and he convinced them to also join in so as not to lose votes. So that is what's happening on the right side of the map. On the left side of the map, it does seem like, and we will know this very soon, Jonathan, but it does seem like Zehava Galon, head of Meretz, and Merav Micheli, head of labor, will not run together. Lapid tried the same Netanyahu trick, which was to say, you have to run together and merge because I don't want to lose any votes for the block. Merav Micheli said to him, um, go bark down another tree. And uh, that is where uh, we are. You know, if I was a... Uh, political cartoonist, I think I might uh, might have drawn uh, Merav Micheli and Zahav Galon standing next to a row of cars and contemplating, do you want to drive in two separate cars or carpool for the funeral of the Israeli left? I know that's a little harsh, but I mean, we this this is where the, the situation is right now. That's the big news coming out. We are 46 days, still 46 days, could you believe it, before the general election. You should be a cartoonist. That's a good... Um, <laughs> I, I could, if, if I could draw mortally. to save my life, I would, I would. Yeah, it's a maudlin thought, but um, <laughs> presumably their calculation, Michaeli and Galon of Labour and Meretz, is that they, the, the, the parts are greater than the sum, that they will get more seats running in two right. separate well, no, parties. Zahava Galon wants this, uh, uh, wants to merge with Labour. Merav Michaeli is saying what you are saying, essentially, ah. which is that we, t- uh, if we run uh, separately, we will get more votes. But the danger here, Right of one of these yeah. parties not uh, uh, passing the electoral threshold is, and obviously that would spell a very clear victory for uh, Benjamin Netanyahu. Is is great for the uh, left center left uh, bloc. Uh, Micheli is being uh, you know bombarded by a lot of of, uh, of her uh, even supporters saying you should do this. She has decided not to, and uh, and we'll see how that will uh, will play out in the elections. And it will be a rerun of that campaign that's happened four or five, if not more times, which is Merit saying you must, must come out to their supporters. It's the, you know, it's existential. Yep. We will be extinguished if we don't make it over the threshold. And that happens every time. It's um, called the Gewalt um, campaign, yeah, I mean, right? That's what But we it, would be, it would be, it would be, I mean, talking about funeral of the Israeli left, if they don't make the threshold and all those thousands of votes go to waste, that will be huge. I just want to say something about what you said before about the, unification efforts of Netanyahu to consolidate the right. I know we've said it before, but worth remembering the parties you mentioned, Ben Gvir, the others, these figures were their uh, predecessors, their forerunners, Mayor Kahana particularly, were shunned, not just by, you know, the Israeli center and left, but by the by Likud, by the right, Yitzhak Shamir, uh, Netanyahu's you know, predecessor as Likud leader would have nothing to do with those people. And here he is acting as, you know, Shad Khan, matchmaker, bringing them together. So they will be a big block in, in just a single generation. That is a huge change in the politics of the Israeli right. And uh, even the mainstream right that Netanyahu claims to represent, he would have had, he is breaking from what Likud did with, in the face of these quasi-fascistic or even fascistic figures 35, 40 years ago. So that is a big and dispiriting shift. 
what before we leave this, what about the party of the previous prime minister, Naftali Bennett? I mean, people who him, I know he's not himself running. I'm glad you asked. But he did have a party. What happened to them? <laughs> oh, they're not. Uh, they, 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 the, the party kind of imploded. So uh, parts of it that wasn't so large to begin with, let's remember. There were about six uh, uh, members of uh, a Knesset. So it kind of went to different uh, directions. Uh, one of them joined the Benny Gantz party and one of them joined the Likud. Two of them actually joined the Likud. Ayala Chiked is a big story here because she is left basically with no party and it's not very clear if she will at all pass the electoral threshold. Just goes to show you, I mean, obviously the sort of, she was the right hand I don't want to say man, but right-hand woman for Bennett for a very long time. It goes to show you the sort of roller coaster that is Israeli politics. Think of the fact that Naftali Bennett two years ago did not pass the electoral threshold two years after he was prime minister. Ayelet Shaked, four years ago, Jonathan, I wrote a piece for The Atlantic about how she's the next prime minister of Israel. I didn't make this up. This was in the polls. And now it looks like she's not going to uh, go into the Knesset. So right now, these people are probably not going to have a, a near future in Israeli politics. I wouldn't rule them out. They they will come back. Yeah, comebacks are always possible in politics in general, but in Israel, I think more than anywhere else, it is the land of the comeback. So Jonathan, a few uh, weeks ago, at the very end of our second uh, season, right before you left for your very long vacation in France, um, we had a discussion. Still bitter. You're still I, I, bitter you notice that? Just a it's little bit. Fading. No, that's not fading. It isn't, uh, to be honest. Um, so the, we had a discussion about climate change, and I felt that you were quite despondent, and I tried to uh, encourage you, but I failed miserably. So this week we thought, since this is the most important topic in the world, let's be honest, uh, that we will talk to someone who really might shed a little bit of light uh, on it. Uh, it is still uh, quite distressing, but maybe will give us some perspective. David Wallace-Wells is a writer for the New York Times, author of the best-selling The Uninhabitable Earth, Life After Warming, widely regarded as one of the sharpest minds writing about the climate crisis today, and in a way that clarifies not just the dangers of the path we're on, but also whether or not we can get off that path. Um, welcome to Unholy, David. We're very glad to have you. I thought we would begin partly just because of where I'm sitting in London, where in and in Britain, which went through um, unprecedentedly high temperatures this summer, um, and uh, you know, where heat waves across the continent, but also now going into this energy crisis simultaneously, where people don't know how they're going to, you know, warm their homes through the winter. I mean, it just seems like this sort of two-pronged crisis. And you've got this odd situation where even countries who are on the kind of path towards renewable energy, Germany comes to mind, are now actually scrambling to get, you know, fossil fuels out of the ground, even apparently Germany now generating nearly a third of its electricity from coal, because they can't get Russian gas anymore. I mean, the you know, it seems as if these are these two forces, and they are pulling in opposite directions, because, you know, one of them is actually making the climate crisis situation worse. How bad, as we brace ourselves for this next European winter, how bad do you think it's going to be? Well, first of all, thanks for having me. It's great to be in conversation with you and great to be here. Um, I think that my sense of the European winter is a little less bleak than it was a month or six weeks ago. Um, it seems to me that there's been better storage of Russian gas than um, we feared was going to happen. Um, the 
continent as a whole has managed to, to this point, um, manage relatively well without any of that gas. Um, of course, the winter is going to be harder. But I think that the measures that are being put into place now um, suggest that what is likely to be experienced as a crisis of prices abated by government support rather than a true energy shortage, which did seem to me to be possible as recently as a month or two ago. Um, that's not going to be comfortable. It's not going to be happy, but it's not going to be quite as bleak as I think many people feared. I think in the long run, um, these forces are not really pushing in opposition, though I think that they are pushing in the same direction, which is to say, I think that this energy crisis has taught Europeans, but truthfully, everyone around the world, that depending on, you know, um, bad behaving autocrats for your energy is not a great bet. And that had countries like Germany, for instance, um, moved even more quickly to move into renewables over the last decade or two, they'd be much less vulnerable to this kind of um, blackmail and exploitation um, today. The problem, as I see it, is that a lot of politicians across Europe and in the UK are taking measures that don't seem to appreciate that dynamic, which is to say that the long-term really the long-term lessons of this crisis really do point towards a green transition. Um, you know, we've seen in the UK, the new prime minister is, you know, not just including fracking as part of her response. It's basically like the centerpiece of her energy response to this crisis, even though it's not possible to engineer a fracking revolution fast enough to have any influence on this crisis at all. Um, it's like the equivalent of building a new nuclear plant. It's just going to take a long time to get off the ground. Um, and you're seeing somewhat similar dynamics elsewhere um, around the continent where you have all of this new liquid natural gas infrastructure being built, which, you know, the truth is, in the short term, I don't begrudge any of these leaders for, for scrambling to, to get fossil fuels. I think that it's what you have to do to make sure your citizens don't freeze through the winter. But if you're making investments that are going to require operations for 20 or 30 years from now, I think that's really um, a bad set of um, decisions and investments. And it's um, it's frustrating. It's also um, a little bit confusing to me to see it happening, given how seriously, as recently as a year ago, I would have said um, the EU as a whole was taking the climate crisis. Um, they have been very happy and very proud to be leaders on that issue. And here you see a much more complicated response to, um, to this prompt. So I think we're seeing a sort of a, in theory, this should bring about a faster transition on the decade timescale. But I'm not sure that the people in power are really learning that lesson or um, implementing it in terms of policy in the right way. Mm -hmm. I think we're heading towards a climate future over the next few decades that could, in theory, be manageable from the perspective of wealthy countries trying to protect their citizens and ensure, you know, continued human flourishing under these conditions. The conditions are much more intense. They're much more jacketed, much less predictable. But in theory, we could prepare for them. The challenge is that we're just not seeing that level of focus, commitment, um, or conscientiousness about just how much disruption is coming and just what would be required to produce that level of, of um, protection and security under those conditions. So it's not like we're heading into a climate apocalypse where nothing is possible, at least not over the time scale of the next few decades, but we are heading into a world in which we are going to need much, much more of a prioritization on the part of our political leaders around how do we navigate a world defined by ever more climate disruptions like the ones that we've seen um, this summer. And in fact, of course, they'll, they'll get considerably worse as, as warming gets worse too. 
Jonathan's so, so really glad to hear that you're not. We're not going towards a climate apocalypse because he's kind of yeah, sure we are, Jonathan, aren't you? Well, I'm worried about it, even with what you've said, because even on your optimistic scenario, you're, it requires. And I have to say, I hear this from other people who immerse themselves in this, which is they always come out saying, look, in the end, don't give up, don't be fatalistic, don't be defeatist, it's okay, so long as all the world's leaders gather together, <laughs> coordinate their action, realize that climate is the number one priority, you know, and so you have to imagine a world where every country is led by a very sort of benign, progressive, forward-looking thinker, and there's no Donald Trump, no Vladimir Putin, no Xi Jinping, etc. So that tell me how we get to that point without you know crossing our fingers and just being utopian how do we get to that point where the world does what it's going to have to do and as you and other you know your your colleagues say on this this has to be soon this isn't there's no time to you know wait for the sort of magic fairy to deliver new political leadership it's got to be now yeah it's one of the scariest things about these timelines is that we can't we can't wait for the next generation the climate conscious generation to um, graduate into power i would say a few things the first is um <laughs> I sometimes do think of myself as an optimist, but very few people think of me that way. I'm much more often <laughs> thought of as an alarmist, and that's because I do think that the changes that we are um, have already made inevitable are quite dramatic. They are going to produce a level of warming, even in a sort of a best-case-from-here scenario that scientists long called dangerous or catastrophic. Island nations of the world have called it genocide. African climate diplomats have called it death for the continent. I think some of that is probably a little bit hyperbolic, but the challenges are enormous and the um, obstacles to a happy, prosperous, stable, just future um, imposed by even the best case scenario climate changes are really, really significant beyond anything we've ever, literally beyond anything we've ever seen before as a species, because we are already outside the range of climate temperatures that enclose all of human history. So we are already in unprecedented territory today. Now, in terms of how we can think, how, how hopeful we should be about whether we will hit that sort of best case scenario of two degrees, maybe even in theory, a little bit below two degrees of warming. I think that there have been some real changes to the landscape here that make the dynamics that you're describing, the challenge of the geopolitical challenges, um, actually a lot easier to solve. And that is basically that as recently as five years ago, certainly 10 or 20 years ago, when we were talking about these challenges, we were talking about shouldering a burden by decarbonizing. We were talking about making energy, which is to say all of economic life, more expensive and difficult. We understood to some degree at some level that we had to do it, but we thought it was going to be hard. It was going to be a moral undertaking. That aspect is still there. This is a moral undertaking, especially when you consider how much more responsible for these changes and damages countries of the global north are compared to those in the global south. I just saw an amazing stat today that Pakistan, which is at the moment still a third of the country is still underwater, has produced in its entire history the same amount of carbon emissions that the United States produces every single year. Well. Just to put that, that context and responsibility in mind. But we thought of that challenge as primarily a moral humanitarian one, which is, I think, one reason why we move so slowly on it. But there has been a revolution, particularly in the price of renewable energy and assorted technologies over the last decade. These things have fallen like 90% in price. And we expect that there have been a couple of supply chain bumps over the last year, but we expect that at least the direction, if not the scale of those declines, will continue, which means that today, in 2022, it's been estimated that 90% of the world's population lives in places where renewable energy is cheaper than dirty energy. 
In some places, it is even cheaper to build new renewable capacity than to continue running old fossil fuel infrastructure, which means that the barriers to uptake are not any longer economic and the challenges are no longer to be better people to solve this problem. We have political economies that were built in part around fossil fuel interests and they're slow to move. We have cultures that don't want to change the way that they do things. There are a lot of reasons we're not moving fast enough. But the logic of like, if you're trying to get cheap energy and put it into the world, renewables are the way to go is really strong. And that is not just logic that applies at the global level. It is logic that applies at the national and subnational level, where there are other factors as well that sort of disaggregate our objectives from the objectives of other countries in the world. It used to be in the old paradigm, we'd say, why should I move? Why should I decarbonize? If, you know, the Americans would always say, if China's still going to keep emitting carbon and, you know, India is going to keep emitting carbon, why should we burden ourselves with this challenge? But in a world in which we see huge economic opportunities through decarbonization, that game theory dilemma no longer applies in exactly the same way. It's not to say that like the whole thing is solved and we're rushing all ahead. There, there are challenges. There, you know, powering the U.S. through renewables could cost could take ten percent of the country's land, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are going to be resi- there's going to be resistance all the way through there. But mm-hmm. it allows individual actors to move through self interest towards a faster decarbonization, and that means that like we're not or we don't have to be looking over our shoulders in the same way at our peers and our rivals and assessing how fast we should be moving on their on the basis of that of, of, of our peers and rivals. We can make those calculations and those plans almost entirely on our own terms. And I think that new logic has been a major factor in why there is so much more climate ambition in the world today than there was just a few years ago. So just over the last couple of years, we've seen this crazily unprecedented wave of net zero pledges. Now something like 90% of the world's um, economy and 90% of the world's emissions are now pledged to net zero. They're, these are paper promises. They are they are empty at this point. They're, we're not building the infrastructure and making the investments to make them real. And yet there are countries who are at least talking and thinking about longer term their own longer term futures and betting on renewables or committing themselves in theory to betting on renewables. And they're doing so not because they got shamed by John Kerry at the COP conference, but because they think, no, we will be richer. And by the way, much healthier because of the air pollution impacts, um, which are huge, um, if we move more quickly ourselves. And I think on some level, that is a cause for optimism, which is to say we don't need to believe in a global governance structure or a kumbaya consensus here. What we need to believe is that individual leaders making logical, cold-hearted calculations about the near-term and medium-term futures of their countries see the logic of a faster path towards decarbonization as opposed to a slower path. It's still not going to be fast enough. You know, people like me still want to move much more rapidly, but it opens up the possibility that rather than say three or four degrees of warming, which is what was expected a decade ago, we really are looking at a kind of a, even if we don't change course all that much from here, something like a two and a half degree world. And if we do accelerate decarbonization from here, maybe something like two degrees or below, which as I said earlier, a generation ago, we would have considered that a catastrophe. But given where we were five years ago, it's also at the same time um, a sort of distressing success. <laughs> distressing success is a, is a good term. I want to talk about the Middle East, um, which is where I'm sitting right now. And you you write about the fact that barring any a change in our emissions trajectory, many major cities in the Middle East will become unlivably hot 
as soon as 2050. Obviously, we really hope that that trajectory is not what we will see in the future. But let's talk a little bit about what that means for a region that has already seen war, drought, famine, and some more war. Well, this is an area that I've been particularly focused on this year, actually. I wrote a couple pieces about the um, South Asian heat wave, and it's changed some of my thinking about where we're heading around the equatorial band of the planet in the sense that, you know, that heat wave in South Asia, almost a billion people living uh, under temperatures that were, in many cases, quite close to what we had been told were literally the maximum survivable limit of um, combinations of temperature and humidity, at least. And we saw very few deaths. Now, those, I think that that is in part a sign of how bad the medical data is coming out of, of India and Bangladesh and Pakistan. But I also think that it's to some degree a sign that we may have miscalculated or misunderstood the way that heat stress and heat risk um, works, especially in the parts of the world that are familiar with heat and have individual and cultural practices and traditions that allow them to um, protect themselves, at least in a sort of single exposure, short duration kind of a way from some of these um, intense heat waves. That's not to say that like fast forward to 2050 and everything's going to be fine in the Middle East or the subcontinent. It's just to say that a lot of the science that we had about what the human body can endure is science that was gathered um, in labs in Northern Europe um, with people who are expo- who are comfortable and, and familiar with, with only much lower temperatures. And I think that there is actually a significant delta there between what is risky for people in Northern Europe and what is risky for people in, in um, the Middle East, um, Sub-Saharan Africa and, and South Asia. And, you know, the truth is that when we think about recent catastrophic heat waves in terms of human mortality, the two, by far the two biggest ones were in Europe, the 2003 heat wave and the 2010 heat wave. And those temperatures were much lower than temperatures that we see actually quite regularly across um, South Asia and the Middle East. And yet European citizens were simply, and and polities, were simply not prepared or capable of responding to those. I think they're a little bit better now, a little bit better prepared now. But still, even so, we saw um, heat wave deaths in Spain and Portugal in a single weekend that at least, according to the official tallies, um, exceeded by a factor of 10 the total number of official deaths um, in South Asia, where, as I said earlier, a billion people were living for a period of two months, which with higher temperatures. That tells me that, you know, this is an incredible stressor. It requires, um, you know, it, it will ask a lot of us, but it may be the case that some of our intuitive expectations for who is most vulnerable and who is most resilient here are not precisely accurate. And that, in fact, we have a lot to learn from some poorer countries in the world about how to handle heat rather than just assuming that the thing that they need is is air conditioning. Now, that all said, I know I've talked to a lot of people who spent two months in Delhi not leaving their homes during the middle of the day. Um, mm. And so when we talk about adaptation, it's easy enough to sort of think of like, oh, we're going to solve that through technology or policy. A lot of these adaptation measures are quite painful. Um, mm. They're quite difficult to endure at an individual level and certainly at a social level, at an economic level, you'll see huge setbacks um, even before the flooding in Pakistan, the, the, um, the heat wave impacts in, in Pakistan, the economic impacts were, were quite large too. And so I think what we're looking at is a future in which um, in many parts of the world for periods of the summer, there will be days when it is dangerous for some people in those places to go outside and work outside, mostly dangerous for older people, for people with comorbidities, but to some extent for young, healthy day laborers too, especially if they're really laboring outside. 
And that means that we're going to see a sort of evolution of social behavior and patterns in those places. Probably we're also going to see the regular occurrence of um, some amount of heat stress, and heat, heat stress and heat death. But I think as likely or as part of the same story, we're going to see labor laws passed in which you're not allowed to do construction after 10 a.m., as I think is already the case in parts of Saudi Arabia, changes to the way that agricultural labor is done in the, um, in the same spirit, a lot more cooling infrastructure, and especially more informed public warning and public information systems that to some degree mitigate um, the direct damages of extreme heat. But you know that's all to say that, as I sort of said about the European situation too, we can, in theory, if we're all working together and making the right investments, we can, in theory, navigate around these challenges. There will be costs. There will, people will die of extreme heat. People will also suffer from extreme heat, short of death. But we can engineer a future that allows us to live somewhat normally under these conditions if we really, really focus on it and prioritize it. Um, the challenge is we're doing that almost nowhere at a policy level. Um, the shortfall on adaptation measures is, I think, even more significant than the shortfall on decarbonization. And especially when you're talking about things like new cooling infrastructure and, you know, the billions of people who, who lack air conditioning across the hottest parts of the world, um, there is really some significant question about resource availability and, and public support. And I don't, I, I certainly don't want to be sounding too optimistic about how that will all play out. Don't worry, you're not sounding too optimistic. <laughs> you don't need to worry on that score, uh, David. Um, let me ask you this. It may be our last question. And it's about the, the politicians moving, particularly in the democratic world. You've said, we, you know, if we did what we could do in terms of uh, mitigation, adaptation, but also, you know, reducing our carbon emissions, yes, it would be possible to manage this. We're not doing that yet. And we're not doing it because politicians in the democratic world respond to public opinion. And so I want to ask you about public opinion and how it can be moved. Why is it that at the moment public publics in, in democracies are not banging the table and demanding their politicians do the very things you're talking about? Is it, in your view, because they just don't believe the seriousness of the threat that you and your new book warn them of? Or is it what I like to call the kind of don't look up syndrome? People will have seen that movie about the comet hurtling towards Earth which is they kind of agree and accept that it's coming. The comet is hurtling towards Earth, but they would rather focus on almost anything, you know, including, you know, Beyonce and uh, Twitter, you know. And so what do you think it is? Do the publics not believe the warnings you and others are giving? Or is it don't look up syndrome? Um, I, you know, I think it's, it's both and many other factors at the same time. Um, I think that we you know, we have an incredible capacity for normalization. So even as we get alarmed when we see wildfires tearing through London or, um, you know, literally what was called a climatologically unprecedented heat wave and drought across China or these unbelievably horrific floods in, in Pakistan, three months from now or six months from now, we will have sort of recalibrated our set of expectations so that we're no longer alarmed by that. I think we also have a sort of intuitive sense that you know, the future is going to resemble the present. And that means that um, we discount any signs that it will not. I think many of us were raised in, um, you know, to expect many of those, you know, sort of post-war European trajectories to continue. And um, while the road may be bumpy, we expected that, you know, prosperity and justice and um, openness, co cosmopolitanism would all sort of 
generally speaking, on long time horizons expand. I think um, it takes a lot to shake us from those intuitions and expectations. And in truth, I think that at a really global, like big picture, um, historical level, the news of climate change is still new. I mean, we're talking about 30 years, basically, since people started talking about it loudly in public. And really, depending on where you are in the world, something like five years, maybe in parts of the equatorial band of the planet, 10 or 15 years, since we started seeing actual impacts on our on our TV news and, and our social media feeds and, and that sort of thing. And that's not that long to really meaningfully change your attitude or perspective or set of political priorities. Um, but I do think actually that all the momentum there is moving in the right direction. And when you see polling, polling on this is all over the place. It depends a lot on how the question's asked. And you can find really contradictory data when you, when you want to look for it. But the truth is that, you know, there are a few outfits that do this in a longitudinal way, ask the same set of questions every year um, of Europeans, of Americans. And on those, in those data sets, like the numbers are all going up. People are more concerned. People are more alarmed. There are fewer deniers. There are fewer, um, and, and the people, you know, the, the number of people who want political action on it um, keeps growing to something like super majorities in really everywhere in the global north. You know, something 60, 70, 80%, depending on the country, believe more should be done to be dealing with climate change. Um, I think that the problem is less about public opinion, which is, yes, scattered and indifferent, but that's true of public opinion about all politics, and yet we do get some things done, um, than it is about the way that our political economies are moving too slowly for a variety of reasons, including some of the same psychological dynamics that you're talking about, but also including the way that the fossil fuel industry um, has shaped our politics for a generation now. And, um, and also because politicians are scared of change and what a, a true green transition really represents is a quite dramatic overturning of almost everything about the way that we um, conduct our lives to this point. Now, that's not to say that we can't preserve all of the most important things while still making sure that the world doesn't have to run on carbon. That is possible. But nevertheless, it is an enormous project to basically rebuild all of the world's infrastructure, all of its um, energy systems, uh, rethink the way that we grow food, rethink the way that we build buildings, rethink the way that we do public transportation, heavy industry, like everything needs to change because everything runs on carbon. And that is a huge, huge ask. But as I say, even there, I think that politics is beginning to reflect the public opinion and beginning to reflect the crisis more and more, not nearly as much as I would like, not nearly as much as many other people who are most concerned about this um, would like. But if you think about where a country like the U.S. was 10 years ago, 20 years ago, where a country like Britain was 10 years ago, 20 years ago, actually, the momentum, the direction of change is very clear. You know, these are countries actually that are cutting emissions, in the case of the U.K., pretty dramatically. Um, and whether the rest of the world is moving at the same speed whether we can accelerate those trends, um, it's an open question. I'm relatively speaking skeptical, but I do think that, you know, if we had an infinite timeline here, we could be quite sure that we are moving in the right direction. We are moving in the right direction. The problem is we're also already living in an unprecedented climate. It's going to get more extreme and more disruptive as we get warmer. And we are moving far too slowly to arrest that story um, our descent into climate disruption, we're moving much too slowly to arrest that before we hit some really, really uncomfortable, bumpy futures. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, that's, that's history. 
David Wallace-Wells, thank you so much for, on the one hand, making us terribly worried, (laughs) but on the other hand, uh, for this not entirely depressing conversation. Thank you. It was such a pleasure talking to you. Thanks so much for having me. Great to talk to you guys. Thank you, David. Well, I don't know whether to be cheered or depressed by that conversation. That's exactly what what we wanted to leave you with. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, there are things in there that are good that, you know, I mean, on the one hand, obviously terrible that we are, we've done more um, damage to the uh, climate and environment in the last 25 years than all the years before is just such a depressing thought. Um, But this notion that actually, we're in a better place than we ever thought we would have been five years ago, even if it's much worse than we would have hoped for 25 years ago. That's a kind of you know, there's a crumb of comfort in that, I suppose. Yeah, I thought I, I knew it would make you feel better. <laughs> I'm taking the term distressing success with me from this conversation. I think that was. Yeah, that could almost be a little motto for our. <laughs> Definitely for Jews, podcast. right? I mean, when you think about for, that. And for Jews, yes, success, <laughs> but in a distressing kind of way. It is so typical. So if we are on the topic um, of distress in a success, uh, success in a distressing way, can we talk about yeah. the fact that you, Renaissance man, have also written a play. Can we discuss that for a moment? We can talk about <laughs> that. It's very nice of you to mention that. It is It is quite true. Um, although the quibble would be, have I written a play? I mean, this is a piece called Jews in Their Own Words, which opens at the Royal Court Theatre next week for previews, previews starting Tuesday. Um, but right, but in a way, but it's formed from interviews that I did with 12 British Jews, and I took their words in from, you know, 180,000 words of transcripts, long interviews with 12 people, and edited and cut those and curated them in such a way to form a sort of two-hour dramatic piece. So it's something completely different for me, really, really very new, but it has one foot still in journalism. But yeah, it's 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 meant to be dramatic. It's meant to be entertaining. But hopefully it will also um, be stimulating for people to uh, understand or think about anti-Semitism, which is really the theme of the play. You know, I've, uh, I've read it. I haven't seen it, uh, obviously. To me, what's amazing about it that it was some parts of it were new to me. I mean, not the history, obviously, but the, but the sentiment, right? what it feels like to be Jewish in, in Britain. And, and it really is... It's gutsy. I, I have to. I have to say that it is. I, I don't know if that makes you happy or not, but it is. I mean, to put this whole topic and to discuss it, uh, kind of put it on the table. And from what you know, you've taught me about uh, a British uh, jury. They're not usually the bunch that would talk out loud, and and you know they're more socially reserved. And now it's it's this is you know front and center. It is very you know, present. I wonder kind of what happened or what changed for maybe for the community and maybe even for you, that this has become something that you can talk about openly and very clearly. I I think you're completely right that it's changed um, because a generation ago um, and and more, um, Jews were definitely uh, minded to keep their heads down, to keep their head below the parapet. Don't make a fuss. Don't draw attention to yourself. In fact, a couple of, I was going to say characters, their interviewees in the play say that. They talk about what they were told by parents and grandparents, telling them, don't tell people you're Jewish. If they don't need to know, don't say. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you're lucky. You've got a name that is, doesn't sound Jewish. You know, hide 
in plain sight was the advice of one father to a daughter. So we have that there, and yet something absolutely did change. Uh, it's been gradual. It's been coming for a f- few decades. I think it's been partly influenced by America, where American Jews are much more you know, loud and sort of out there. And I think Jews visiting America did that. I think it's partly Israel and just the sense there is a Jewish society you can go to. And again, that's not hidden. I think it on, on odd influences other sort of progressive movements, you know, other liberation movements. You know, it was the gay rights movement that talked about being out and proud. And I think some of that rubbed off on Jews too, about, well, why are we hiding? Mm-hmm. Let's be out. But the in terms of being more assertive about particularly the issue of anti-Semitism, I think the big change is the last four or five years, what I sometimes call the sort of Corbyn Wars, the battles that were fought over the leader of the Labour Party between 2015 and 2019. We talked about him a lot on the uh, on this podcast, Jeremy Corbyn, and that period where there were regular controversies about anti-Semitism within Labour, within the left, and therefore within Britain. And Jews asserted themselves there in a way that was very, very new to them. Uh, they demonstrated outside Parliament. They had never done that before under the slogan, enough is enough, which captured the kind of weariness and the exasperation with just sort of taking it. And um, I think that it's that mood that of new confidence and new assertiveness that, that, that makes in some ways the play possible. Mm-hmm. But also it's talked about in this production where people describe how they they had an upbringing of, of, of where often they did keep their heads down and they reached a point where they just didn't want to do that anymore mm-hmm. and i think that may be uh, i hope a bit of a revelation for people seeing it it's four we're four days before um uh, before opening night how stressed out are you from one to ten just wondering I am very, very stressed <laughs> because it turns out this is a diff- very different process. Yeah. I mean, you de- you have seen an early draft, but yeah. things change for incredibly practical reasons. I mean, when I write something, a book or whatever, it's me, the keyboard, and that's it. Yeah. And suddenly there are people. Uh, suddenly, <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, suddenly it's about lighting. And hang on, this person who's saying that can't move downstage in time to say that. So can we take two words out there or you know, we have six actors playing 12 characters. So what happens when an actor who plays two of the same characters, that the two word, the two, you know, paragraphs or whatever of speech of the t- these two people are next to each other. You don't want the actor having to change from one person to the other. So therefore we have to change that. And there's all those, you know, lighting, costume, there's all different things. There are two songs in the show, which I have written the lyrics for. And that is a new <laughs> Now you're just showing off, man. Um, so, you know, it's a very, very <laughs> new thing. And um, but, but, you know, none of it exists or would exist without the 12 interviewees, a real range, a couple of politicians in there, you know, a journalist, a novelist, but also a social worker, a doctor, uh, a painter and decorator, a, a refugee from Iraq, a Haredi man who was beaten in the street in an anti-Semitic attack. Uh, we have it all in there. It's a, it's people who no one's ever heard of. It's people who they have heard of speaking in a way they've never spoken before, I think, in public. I'm hoping it will be a bit of an eye-opener and for, for Jews, as, uh, certainly, but I think I hope for people who are not Jewish too. I will bestow upon you a story that uh, my one of my closest friends is a theatre director, and every 
every time, every single time before opening night, he collapses. Like there's a two-day meltdown. He thinks nothing's going to work. Nothing's going to. And then I always see him on opening night and the play's fine and he's fine. He's standing up and everything's fine. And then I ask him, you know, how are you holding up? Because you seem like you had this meltdown. And then he says to me, I am... I'm held up by a lot of ambition and a lot of glue. So I will bestow upon you some ambition and some glue. Uh, and, and tell our listeners that one day I will write my uh, one-man show, one-woman show, Jonathan Friedland, The True Story. But before that, uh, and before we have to go uh, in our podcast, uh, what we can call Two Jews in Their Own Words, uh, we will uh, dole out some awards, I think. It's time. Yeah, we should. We definitely should. Um, so um, I was just going to say it's Jews in their own words at the Royal Court. Did, did I mention the theatre? Just in case people want a book, previews next week, opening night the 28th. Do come if you are in London or just passing through. Yes. Our award. Should we go for Chutzpah Award first? Sure. It's uh... I think it... Think of the, the finger of destiny points to you for that. <laughs> How surprising. Mm -hmm. This week, I think we can call it the honorary Donald J. Trump um, chutzpah award. Uh, whole, kind of, we put together a few stories all related to the 45th president. So first of all, a new book by friends of the pod, Peter Baker and his wife, Susan Glaser, two uh, great American journalists uh, that claim that Trump offered the West Bank uh, to King Abdullah of Jordan we should say maybe, a land in dispute between Israel and the Palestinians. Uh, Trump offered Abdallah what he called a great deal, and Abdallah later recalled the offer speaking to American friends, saying, I thought I'd have a heart attack. I know that the, the we know the former president knows a lot about real estate. This is not your building to sell, sir. So that is what we can say about that story. Another related story from an... Perfect chutzpah. <laughs> is, is quite, Perfect. And this is a little sort of also connected to, to Donald Trump, although not involving him directly as the uh, uh, chutzpah award nominee, but this is is a story coming out from a different book by a former advisor to Trump, Peter Navarro, saying that some of Trump's advisors, like Steve Bannon, trying to oust Kushner, who was obviously his senior advisor and son-in-law, and they wanted to do it in during Shabbat because um, Kushner is a um, an observant Jew. So they wanted to, to try and do this in Shabbat. The episode is titled, by the way, Shabbat Shalom and Sayonara, I think, or something of the sort. This obviously didn't work, but still, you know, that is a funny story. Good and worthy nominees all. Um, some of them, dictionary definition chutzpah, selling land that isn't yours, I do particularly love. Donald Trump has got a bit of a lock, I feel, on chutzpah, one way or another. He's, we should tot up how many times he's, yep. uh, or, or he or Trump-adjacent folk yep. have been nominated. For Mensch, I wanted to give, I was very all ready to hand out a Mensch award at a certain stage of a football match on Wednesday night for the Maccabi Haifa player who got the first goal against PSG. Delighting Look Jewish sports fans the world over, everything. but it kind of it didn't really turn out though, did it? Because <laughs> it, 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 Haifa went one one goal up, and then it was one one, and they lost three one on the night. So no mention award, I'm afraid. Well, you know, an honorary mention. Similarly, because we were talking about um, educational achievement before, and how Haredim are at the bottom of the list when it comes to eligibility for the Bagrut, the sort of baccalaureate equivalent mm -hmm. in Israeli education top of the list uh, it turns out of by group are Druze mm -hmm. students yep. um the word Druze is mentioned in my little play by the way i won't tell you how but it's it's funny how it comes up mm -hmm. but anyway i think Druze students reaching uh, highest eligibility academically uh, given some disadvantages that community may well have i think um is deserving of mention. But I wanted to give our mention of the award week posthumously. I think we may have done this two weeks running, given uh, Queen Elizabeth last week. But um, 
It's interesting to me that Jonathan Sachs, the late chief rabbi of this country, was honoured for the second year running for the Sachs Conversation, which is hosted annually, uh, held in uh, Jerusalem in the office of President Herzog, where he and the First Lady greeted the widow uh, of Jonathan Sachs, Lady Elaine Sachs, uh, for a conversation and just to remember his enduring legacy. Present were luminaries from uh, Israeli society. It just strikes me that something fascinating has happened since the death of Jonathan Sachs a couple of years back, uh, you know, at a relatively young age of 72. In the two years since, the the legend, the sort of fame of Jonathan Sachs has, if anything, grown. And this is arresting to me that this has happened. You know, big following anyway, a tremendous speaker, writer of some some really um, important books. But thanks to, I think, technology, people are watching online videos of his talks, videos of his lectures. And listening and on podcasts. And it's wrong to talk about it. There's a podcast and, and that you podcast, can listen to, his exactly, Jareem, his lessons. Yeah. yeah, I mean, there is a real following mm-hmm. for his teachings. And it's an interesting notion about our 21st century world where dispensers of wisdom, rabbinic wisdom and other forms of wisdom, in some ways never die because thanks to technology, their teaching lives on. And I notice that he is quoted and cited, people tell me, at weddings and bar mitzvahs in Britain, but in, in Israel, in America. He's, he's a rabbi whose um, impact seems only to grow even in death. And so a, a mention of the week award for Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. Agreed. So we will say our thank yous. Before we do, we should mention that our next uh, week's episode is going to be a special one. Um, we will boldly go where this podcast has never gone before. That's all I'm going to say to tease it. And do remember to follow us on Instagram, on Facebook, where we are Unholy Podcast. Do make your comments, thoughts, suggestions. We do like to see those. Generally, do do what you can to spread the word. And we will say our thank yous to Gaia Glaser, Omer Primat, Romatic, Yair Bashan. And we shall meet next week, Jonathan. Looking forward to it. This podcast is brought to you by Cyber Attacks Can Be Prevented. Checkpoint. You deserve the best security.